0: All right, everyone, if I could grab your attention, please. Hey, welcome, welcome. Please stay standing on your feet if you wouldn't mind. Also, for those of you who are in the back and you don't have a place to sit, there are a few like random spots up here in the front if you want to brave coming to the front of the room. We'd love to have you up here. We're just as friendly up here as you are back there. So. Anyways, hey, um, if we haven't met, I'm Andrew, one of the pastors here at Riverbend. Together with my wife, Grace, and an amazing group of leaders, we get to lead Riverbend towards following after Jesus, and that's probably why you're here. And if you're not, and you're just a guest, we are so glad that you're here as well and and just want to welcome you as a part of our family. Um, So we're going to begin with a scripture reading here in a moment, but let's just I don't know what this week has been like for you. For me, I've had lots of kind of chaos and changed plans and Thanksgiving wasn't what we thought it was going to be and all of that. And so I want to do a little practice here that we almost never do, uh, especially in our society. But I just want to take a deep breath and have just a few moments of silence as we come and center ourselves around Jesus and his word. So begin by just taking a deep breath in. And exhale. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Thank you. All right, let's read from John chapter 17. This is Jesus praying to the Father. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still with you in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. And my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. And they are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. And I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity." Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Amen. Have a seat. So welcome to the final week or the final installment, if you will, of our series Live Together which is a mini series on the practice of community and hospitality. And if you've been here, we've been talking a bit about Jesus' vision for community. We've also been sort of addressing the obstacles that we face in practicing community truly in the Western world. And today we're talking about when community becomes. Mission. It's our contention that community is not just something we do to enrich ourselves in the church, but it's actually a primary way that we embody the love of Jesus to the outside world. So Christians and non Christian historians agree that the rise of early Christianity in the Roman world is the most dramatic cultural movement in the history of the world. The first three centuries of Christian mission were so massively influential that it defies explanation. So that's the premise of Robert, uh, Rodney Stark's book, The Rise of Christianity. And in it, he gives us a growth chart uh, of people who followed Jesus in the, uh, the Roman Empire in terms of just basic math. So here it is. Here's the growth chart straight from the rise of Christianity, Rodney Stark. So, as you can see here, in 8040, he estimates that there were about 1,000 Christians, or less than 1,000th of a percent of the total population. That is like an extreme minority when you think about it. The way of Jesus is not even qualifying as a fringe religious group at this point. Now I want you to to imagine, like if you were alive during this period of time following Jesus, and now just imagine that a friend came to church one Sunday and was like, listen, I don't really care for how Caesar is running the empire. So let's like sign a petition, let's unite our influence. You know, let's, let's hold a rally. Let's make our voice heard in Rome. This is going to be a Christian empire. If you started to talk like that in 80, 40, man, it, you would be considered to be crazy. You'd be concerned for that guy. At the time, the prospect of widespread social influence in the name of Jesus sounded crazy. You'd probably like bring the elders together to pray for that man for a for a right mind in the spirit or something like that. We don't even have enough people for a gospel choir for Resurrection Sunday, let alone to like rally our influence and legislate our values on a global stage. But by 8,100, there was about 7,550 followers of Jesus. That's about 40% growth per decade. That's really impressive growth. And then by 8,150, there were 40,000 By 82.50, there were 1.1 million Jesus followers. It's almost 2% of the total population. But then, this is where it gets really crazy. By 83.50, there were over 33 million Jesus followers, or 56% of the Roman Empire. And no religious movement has had this kind of traction in any society before or since. And what makes this even more remarkable was that the Roman Empire was a pagan, very hostile host culture to Christianity, particularly as it began to grow. So as hard as it may be for you to be like out as a Jesus follower at your company or in your neighborhood, we have a fairly easy road compared to ancient Rome. If you profess to be a follower of Jesus, you were at an extremely high risk of being martyred. In fact, that word that Jesus uses in Act chapter 1 when he says, you will be my witnesses, the Greek word that he uses for witnesses is the word martes, which is where we get our word martyr. So in other words, for the first three centuries of the church, Being killed for your allegiance to Christ was so ubiquitous with simply being a witness for him that the term witness just came to mean those who died for identifying with Jesus. So that makes the growth chart that we just saw of the early church, I think, all the more startling, shocking, incredible. So the witness of the early church, it had to be so compelling that people actually wanted to be a part of the Jesus movement despite the fact that it meant signing up for being a social outcast. It also meant saying no to the casual promiscuous sex of the culture of the day, and eventually probably being burned to death. So how is this possible? that the Christian movement grew like it did. Now, many people think that it began with like spirit-inspired preaching and miracle working. And to be really clear, the New Testament is filled with stories of people like Peter and Stephen and Priscilla and Paul preaching like really killer gospel sermons. And there were like dramatic miracles being done at the hands of the apostles. And these were very powerful events. But it was often met with like intense pushback not like a groundswell of spiritual awakening. And most like social religious movements at the time, in the first couple centuries, flowed from the Areopolis in the Greco-Roman culture and other sort of ivory tower institutions. This was a very sophisticated, elite, intellectual culture. And the gospel didn't get a whole lot of traction in places like that. For example, you're probably familiar with the story in Acts chapter 17 where Paul preached in Athens to a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And if you go to seminary today, thousands of years later, and you take a class on homiletics, you'll spend at least a couple of weeks studying Paul's preaching and his techniques uh, from this passage. It's widely regarded as probably the best sermon in the Bible outside of the Sermon on the Mount. And it ends with this like triumphant line, and God has proved all of this to you by Jesus Christ rising from the dead. And then he like drops the mic. (laughs) And here's the response. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others of them said, we'll hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. So like the majority response was like mocking and some mild interest in a new idea. The majority response was not like repentance and radical conversion. And Paul just leaves. He walks down to a coffee shop. I guess that was it. And frankly, that trend began to continue. Extra-biblical, non-Christian historians from that era, like Josephus and Galen and Julian, don't worry, there's not going to be a test, all of them were considering it a mark against the Christian gospel, that it had not been considered successful in classical institutions that shaped the culture at the time. So this would be like a cultural movement taking the world by storm today without the endorsement or the backing of Silicon Valley or D.C. or Hollywood or academia. This is a wild event that's taking place in these first few centuries. And this is not to like discount bold proclamations of the gospel. I think the pro- proclaiming the gospel is extremely important. I kind of do it as a part of my job here at Riverbend. Jesus commanded it. We're all about telling others about Jesus. We just finished a round of Alpha, and it went really, really well. It was awesome. It's just that spirit-inspired gospel presentations alone just will not explain how you go from one one-thousandth of the total population to 56% of the total population. It's just not telling the full story. So what was it then? How is it possible that all of this happened? It's a verifiable history. Well, here's how historians think it happened. The message of Jesus produced a profound transformation in the lives of his followers. And those followers formed... A very concrete alternative society while remaining in broader society and open to outsiders. And it was very attractive and it was a compelling way of life. And it was their life together that was a compelling witness to the outside world. Again, Ron D. Snark attributes the rise of Christianity to several factors. Here they are. He he attributes it, or this is what he says the history will tell you, is that Christians radically redefined relationships of love and devotion. And this was a hallmark trait of the early church. They called each other brother and sister, which was and is like profoundly countercultural. And they were also, like, redrawing the lines of their social responsibility to conclude all fellow followers of Jesus. Meaning they weren't just, like, taking care of and bearing the burdens of their elderly parents, for example. They were taking care of the needs of everyone in the family of faith. In addition to that, they were also, like, a radically urban community. Like, lots of fringe religious groups would sort of create these enclaves outside of cities because of their, like, culture-forming power. It was just, like, too uphill, to distinguish yourself in an empire that was as powerful as Rome. But the Christians were like deeply enmeshed in pagan society, maintaining existing social networks and remaining open to outsiders, despite being so easily outnumbered by the majority culture. So that's number one. They radically redefined relationships of love and devotion. Number two, Christians practiced mercy and charity to a level that embarrassed the Roman government. This is well-documented in history. It's fascinating. By the second century, Julian tried to... By the way, if you haven't found out, I kind of enjoy the nerdy parts of church history, and you're here, and so you're stuck with me. I'm so sorry. but this is actually really really fascinating, okay? So by the 2nd century, Julian tried to get the Romans to like mimic Christian ethics and values, like caring for the poor and other social services. And he loathed the Christians for our beliefs. He called us like the insidious Galileans, but he also marveled at our love and charity. And he was ashamed by the empire. You can actually go back and read his literature online. He was ashamed that the empire, as powerful as it was, couldn't organize its resources to help the marginalized like the Christians were able to do. Because sacrificial giving was like a basic ethic of the Christian lifestyle. And he just could not get the pagan society to adopt that way of life. A prime example of this was in the third century. There's a big plague, sound familiar? Big plague that went through uh, the empire. And Galen who was a renowned physician and historian, he packed his stuff up very quickly and left Rome to escape death, like along with the rest of the high-ranking officials. But the early Christians famously stayed, and they heroically provided nursing aid to the sick and dying. And obviously, with like no natural immunity themselves, the majority of them also died, saving others uh, from the plague. Now, how is this possible? Well, we think that they were already mentally and emotionally prepared to be martyred. They already accepted that was probably going to be their fate. And they're also convinced that this life was prelude to eternity. So they had no trouble accepting the vocation of suffering and giving up their lives to save the sick. So imagine, I want you to imagine this moment for, for, for a second. Imagine you're like a stakeholder of Rome. And you've been like actively, viciously eradicating Christians from the empire. And then when Rome's existence is being threatened, you like tuck tail and run. You get out of there. Only to to return later and find that the Christians, the ones that you've been killing, had prevented the total devastation of of your society. Again, this is verifiable history, and it is a profound, compelling witness to the outside world. Next, the, the Christians treated women way better than the rest of society. The Romans were uh, famous for treating women as second class. There were, like, for example, all kinds of different uh, double standards. For example, sexual promiscuity amongst men was, like, assumed to be normal, even celebrated part of culture. And there were basically no repercussions for what we would call today, like, essentially, sex slavery. Uh, But women were expected, on the other hand, to be virgins when they got married if they wanted to marry like a civilized man or something like that. So weird double standards. But the church actively taught monogamy and equality between brothers and sisters in Christ. So the church became like a haven for women and children who were badly mistreated outside the church. But inside, the alternative society of love treated them with dignity and honor. It's such a beautiful thing. You only get that from the ethic of Jesus. You don't get that from secular culture. Next, Christians treated all human life as sacred. Contrary to the rest of society, they did not practice abortion. They honored all human life. And so the Christians ended up having way more children than the rest of society, which eventually led to the proliferation of the Jesus movement. And finally, Christians were open to people of all ethnicities. Roman culture had a lot of ethnic class warfare issues going on at the time, but again, Christians redrew lines of acceptance and a belonging around anyone who believed, regardless of skin color or the ethnic background, which again, unheard of at the time, but completely normal in the alternative society of the early church. So there you have it. The, The way of Jesus produced, transformed followers of Jesus who lived an alternative lifestyle in an alternative society, who then became a compelling witness to the world. And eventually that transformed life transformed broader culture as well. And so their goal was not to become like a Christian empire or anything like that. They wanted what we want. We want the kingdom of God to come here in Central Oregon on earth as it is in heaven. But their lifestyle was so attractive that secular culture actually wanted in. And this is how Rodney Clark sort of concludes his book. He says this, A Christian congregation was from the first, a community, in a much fuller sense than any corresponding group. Its members were bound together not only by common rights, but also a common way of life. Love of one's neighbor is not an exclusively Christian virtue, but in this period, Christians appear to have practiced it much more effectively than any other group. The church provided the essentials of social security, but even more important than these material benefits was the sense of belonging which the Christian community could give. Isn't that so good? And this is the kind of witness we want to reclaim in the modern post Christian West in which we live. In other words, this is how community actually becomes mission. So community is not just a personal enrichment exercise. Community is how we embody the love of Christ to the outside world. We form deep ties, real relationships of love with each other. Because Jesus commanded it, and we follow him. It's all about how he first loves us, and we're following that example. And eventually we're rewarded by things that we've been talking about in the last couple of weeks. Like we're no longer lonely or consumeristic in our relationships. We feel seen and loved and like we actually belong in the family of believers. And even though we're far from perfect, we still kind of belong here. And it's how we cultivate a culture of belonging, develop the skills of devotion. And over time, we're sort of formed into the image of Christ. All the things we've been talking about these last three weeks. But then, as a result of our devotion to the practice of community it's we what, what the results are this that we have created a small alternative society that gives off a compelling witness to the secular world that can only be explained by the supernatural love of Jesus which again unsurprisingly is what God's plan was all along look at John chapter 13 verse 34 where Jesus says a new command i give you love one another. As I have loved you, so you must also love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So I think there's a reason why every church that you've ever been to has preached a message on that verse. Because it's like a condensed symbol or command of what it looks like For us to practice the love of Jesus, but then also how that love of Jesus is infectious and begins to spread. And I'm convinced that the love of Jesus is so stunning that for many people, people, before they can actually believe that it's true, they have to be shown that it's real. In order for people to be able to believe that it's true, they have to be shown that it's real. And the reality is is that I love things that are true. I love the truth. I love it. But I love real so much more. And the church at our best is like a relational home that proves that the love of Jesus is actually real. And I know that's what a lot of you are like craving from the church. And I know from having enough conversations with you um, that there's many of you who feel this. You're like, that's exactly what the church has not been for me. It hasn't been a relational home. I don't feel loved or connected. Or like the community of believers is a relational home for me at all. So I recognize that, again, in the West, this is kind of a sore subject for many of us. And I've tried to give an explanation for why true biblical community can be so elusive for us here in sort of the Pacific Northwest in the 21st century. And I can't answer for the church that you came from, and I certainly can't claim that we've, like, implemented and perfected a strategy or a system that makes sure everyone gets, like, a white glove concierge service where everyone feels, like, perfectly loved and seen based on your personality type and your Enneagram or whatever. Like, we just, we're we're not a perfect church. We're far from that. But what I can say is that for all of our imperfections, flaws, and room for improvement, we are devoted to practicing the way of Jesus together. Our resources and all of our leaders, we are focused on fulfilling this new command from Jesus to love one another deeply from the heart the way that Jesus loved us. And I would also add, very just gently and kindly, is that this is a new command for you as much as it's a command for anyone else. So if the church, has, the church of the West's reputation is not that we are a community of love, and that if we haven't formed an alternative society of love, then it's our job. It's your job, it's my job to change that reputation. And that's what the Lord is calling us into. Look again at John chapter 17. This is, the, again, if you're unfamiliar with this section of Scripture, this is like literally moments before Jesus is arrested by the Romans, incidentally. And Jesus is praying to the Father on behalf of his followers. And this is what he says. He says, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still with you, so that they may know the full measure of my joy within them. And I've given them your word, and the world has aided them, for they are not of the world any more other than I am not of the world. And my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So essentially what Jesus is saying here is as he's praying, he's concerned about our well-being, the followers of Jesus. So after he goes away, he's concerned because he's like, man, the world's going to hate these people just like they hated me. But but remember, Jesus is saying, hey, I've given them the truth. I've given them the word. And it's, it's just historic that, you know, secular culture often rejects God's word and hates people for like often like living in the truth or speaking and preaching about the truth. And Uh, You might have experienced some of that just being a part of this community in the Pacific Northwest. We just, in the last few months, have launched seven total groups for people in sexual recovery and betrayal trauma and stuff like that. And we've been talking a lot over the last few months about what it looks like for us to live pure and holy in an over-sexualized society. And the world would look in on this conversation that we've been having and just be like, hey, what's the big deal about like, hooking up with people on dating apps or looking at pornography? What, is the, what are you guys talking about? You know. So we are in, in the works, like forming this alternative society. We do not expect the world to get it or to appreciate it. And notice what Jesus is also saying. He's saying, listen, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world because they're going to be my witnesses. That would defeat the point. Like the people of Jesus are in the world in order to get the message out and to see the world transformed by the gospel of Jesus. So Jesus knew not to pray to take us out of the world. It would defeat the purpose of the Father's mission. He's saying, I'm, I'm asking the Father that he would protect you from the evil one. And I love that. Much more on that in a future sermon series on the evil one. That's coming. Look at the rest of John 17. He says this. As you have sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For I sanctify myself that they may too may be truly sanctified. And my prayer isn't for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me and I've given given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Now check this last line. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me even as you have loved me. So in other words, Jesus is giving us a paradigm for what it looks like to be his people in a world that tends to hate the way of Jesus and how we can be his witnesses here. He's saying, I pray also for those who believe in me through their message. He's speaking about us. He's speaking about you and I, thousands of miles away and thousands of years later. And he also says, as you have sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. That word send, if you're familiar with biblical theology, you're probably already aware that that word send is where the word in Latin, missio, comes from, which is where we get our word mission. So in other words, in order to to be on mission or to be a missionary is just very simply, all it means is that we are sent by God for a specific purpose or cause or to a specific place. And Jesus is saying, Father, you sent me. In that exact same way, I am sending my people. So he expects this movement to begin to spread. And then he says this, and this is kind of layered in, but it's critically important to understanding our mission. Just as we are one, saying him and the Father are one, may they also be in us so that the world may believe, again, there it is, that you sent me. This is a statement of pur- purpose. So in other words, you and I Being united in love together is actually more than about just us coming together and getting good feels on Sundays. It's actually about revealing the identity of Jesus and the salvation that Jesus brings. Being united in love is an essential part, not to the side of our mission strategy, but an essential part of our witness to the world. And my hope here, as one of the pastors of this community, is that. When people see us, whether they agree with us or not, whether they agree with our strategy, whether they agree with our stance on sexuality, is not what interests me. What I hope is that they would look in and see us and be like, man, that Riverbend community, man, they really live out the Jesus stuff. And in my opinion, our culture has been sampling all kinds of different worldviews. Our culture's been told so many stories that promise like a version of salvation. And to me, what I'm seeing from broader culture is that people just seem really worn out on it all, spinning out and not really knowing what to believe. And it's into this kind of society that I think people are tired of being told what to believe is true. And people are instead craving to be shown that something is real. And that is the opportunity of the new community. See, particularly in a post-Christian society where people are generally suspicious of Christians, I think it's critically important that the lives that we lead, you and me, match the message that we preach. There's real integrity that when we say we love one another, we actually mean that to the point of devotion. Leslie Newbegin was a 20th century missionary and missiologist, and he's been extremely helpful in teaching churches to think about spreading the good news about Jesus in the modern world. A little bit about him, he grew up in like a pre-World War II England, which he describes as a Christianized society, and then he went on to the mission field uh, to India, which at the time was like a pre-Christian society, and then he shared the gospel there and planted churches there for like several decades. And then he came home to a post-World War II England, which he described as a post-Christian society. So for Newbigin, a post-Christian society is just when like a majority culture is divining themselves against the Judeo-Christian values of their upbringing. So in other words, they're deconstructing things like God and sex and gender and religion and eternity and abortion issues and all of that. And then they're reconstructing an ideology around things like naturalism and socialism and Marxism and identity politics and so on. And most people would agree that this is the kind of moment that you and I are living in in, in, in the 21st century in the Pacific Northwest. And so much of Newbegin's later work is about dealing with how do you make disciples in a Christian society, and how does that differ from how you introduce Jesus, introduce people to Jesus and make disciples in a pre-Christian society, and how that differs from how you make disciples in a post-Christian society. Is this making sense so far? OK. So the overall message never changes. It's always about you or I trusting in Jesus as the king and savior of the world. That will always be and continue to be the good news. The question is actually more about understanding how that message is specifically good news to people in our generation and in this place. And then the second thing is that the command to be a compelling witness of love will never change either. Jesus gave us one new command in the upper room discourse to love one another as I have loved you. And he's the one who sets the agenda for the church. It's not our job to like contemporize or like do Jesus's PR so that we make the Bible more like palatable to a post Christian society. But what Newbegin is pointing out is that depending on what kind of society you're in, it may change what you emphasize. And it may change where you feel resistance. So in a Christianized society, most people have like a shared vision of Jesus. That's good, right? That's really good. Where you may feel resistance is in the form of people sort of growing complacent and participating in the life of the church by like rote tradition instead of like as a part of a sacred calling. My friends who pastor in like the Bible Belt of America right now, that's the problem that they're dealing with. It's not really our issue. In a pre-Christian society, most people just don't know who Jesus is, which is also a very challenging thing. But you also don't have all of the preconceived perceptions about Jesus that people have in a society like ours, or like bad habits that they inherited from centuries of church tradition. But in a post-Christian society, it's just plain hard, because people, for many reasons, are reacting against Christian ideology, Now, I personally think it's a blessing that I can generally assume that you're not coming here on a Sunday, like joining a community and serving our kids unless you're committed to following Jesus. Like, I don't think you're here because like all of your neighbors in your neighborhood like dragged you here to church and you're basically disinterested with Christianity. I think you're here or at least most of you are here because you're already committed to following Jesus or you're, sig- or you're seriously considering following him. And so I think that's a plus because we're here on purpose. But what we battle in our culture is people's skepticism, people's cynicism, their belief that cre- Christianity is part of what's wrong with the world. And this kind of resistance, I think, changes what we emphasize. This, this time requires a ton of contending prayer for God to break the soil of our hard society. It also requires like tons of patience and courage to be an outsider. It's not easy to be a minority culture in a society like ours. And then I also think that it requires a ton of faithful witness. Faithful witness. And by that I mean we need to have integrity and courage in our orthodoxy, but we also need like a radical Jesus-style love for one another over a long, long, sustained period of time. And so this is how Newbigin concludes. At the end of his life, he wrote this. He says, I've come to feel that the primary reality we have to take into account seeking for a Christian impact on public life is the Christian congregation. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? I'm suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and who live by it. See, I think the gospel of Jesus is true. And my entire family's life is anchored on that worldview statement. Your neighbors may never believe that it's true. But if they ever do, it will likely be because you and I have had the courage to show them that it's real over our lifetime in this alternative way of life that we call community. And so we get to be the ambassadors for Jesus in our city, and we get to be the ones who show the city of Bend that the love of Jesus is credible and plausible and real. We get to do that. So into our cultural context, yes, we know that it's lonely out there where people only love within the limits of consumerism as long as it's sort of working working out for them, but not in here. And here it's agape. We know that outside of here, women are treated as like sexual objects where our worth is really tied to our sex appeal and date rape is like a common phenomenon, but not in here. Here you're a sister where you can experience dignity and honor from your brothers in Christ. We know out there that the culture wars are raging. We're friends until we disagree, and then you're the villain but not in here. Here we disagree and we're different, but we forgive and we accept one another regardless of those differences. And we know out there that there's like a lot of pressure to perform and to be successful and success is what you project into the world, but not in here. Integrity and virtue is what counts here. And we know that there's like an intricate class system based on wealth and education and race and age and connections. You've got to like work your way into the in-group. But not in here. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ. It's my contention that this takes years and years of faithful witness and lots of slow progress. But as we practice community, the values of the kingdom of God begin to take shape in our hearts. Not because we say that we believe them and have the right things on our website, but because we actually live as though they're true. And eventually, we find this relational home and we experience the love that we've been longing for. And then at the end of all of that, we regain that compelling witness to a secular culture. Uh, Many of you know we've been doing this program we call Alpha. Uh, It's a great way, we think, to introduce people to the person of Jesus. And it's 10 weeks of conversations, and we just finished it up, and it went amazing. At the end of a Tuesday night Alpha, we go and do what we call an after party down the road at Ben Brewing. And we just kind of have a pint of beer, or maybe someone drinks water or whatever. and, And then we just have more conversation and, uh, and about halfway through, we had uh, a guest who has been coming since week one. He's a really interesting guy. He first kind of was open to the idea that God might exist because he went on like a mushroom and acid trip. And he was like, I think something's out there. And so he wound up at my alpha table. Poor guy, you know. Um, so he's in my alpha table and, and he starts referring to his conception of God as Sky Daddy. To him, it's like sky daddy, because he has no clue. He has no paradigm for Jesus or anything like that, and we're here having conversations about Jesus. And so, anyways, he keeps coming back. He's really kind of riveted by the conversation. This is around week five or six or so, and we're over at Ben Brewing, finishing out the night. And as we were leaving, he said, you know, this is actually really good for me. When I get together with the rest of my other friends, which is kind of cool, he was starting to consider us his friends, He's like, you know, we just get hammered and we don't really talk about anything that matters. But at Alpha, we're always talking about things that are real and we're helping each other here. And I need a lot more of that in my life. And my response to that was like, yep, come on, dude. Like, you're always welcome. Little does he know what he's being attracted to, what he's being drawn to, is the community of Jesus. That's exactly what we're talking about here. That takes time, patience, in a post-Christian society like ours. This is what C. Christopher Smith writes about in his book, Slow Church. The fuller story of the New Testament is that God's people have been resurrected as the body of Christ. So just as Jesus is the embodiment of shalom, or that's the Hebrew word peace, that God intends for creation. The church's role in the drama of creation is likewise to be the embodiment of God's shalom, albeit in a form that hasn't been fully realized yet. So I want you to just imagine that person in our society who's feeling terribly alone and aimless in life without the hope of Jesus, and which is very typical in our culture, waking up, in bed with the wrong person again, and wallowing in the shame that comes from trying to find acceptance and love by giving away your body prematurely. Or maybe this person's strategy is to just go out to the bar multiple times a week, get hammered, get drunk, make hundreds and hundreds of social connections where you share inside jokes and some fun times, but you never really develop the skills of devotion to develop deep companion-style relationships where they can share their real emotions, their real vulnerabilities, and what they're actually going through in their life. Now imagine if that person's impulse or reaction was to run to an evangelical church and thought to themselves, man, if I can just get to the people of Jesus, I've heard that if I go there, I might experience love and grace and a heart of compassion and maybe even be healed. I understand this is not really our reputation in the western church but it is possible to have this kind of reputation it has been the case it has been true in the past of previous christian societies not the least of which is the early church i told you about a moment ago we will never have a perfect record but we can have a consistent one if we endure and if we commit to fulfilling jesus's first command my conviction is that we can and hopefully will see something like this in our day or maybe it won't be our generation, but maybe our kids will experience uh, this in their time where people are flocking to the community of Jesus to find love and grace and forgiveness and acceptance. Our job is simple. It's simple. It's to be a faithful witness while being connected to secular culture give you a bit of hope. This has actually been true of many previous small societies throughout Christian history. There's, been, there's a long, rich history of small groups of Christian community having a vibrant and powerful impact in post-Christian societies. There's always been like this sort of alternative prophetic community like we're talking about. Communities like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Babylon in exile, Bonhoeffer and uh, his crew in Nazi Germany. And scholars have given them a name. They call them a creative minority. And John Tyson, a pastor out of of, uh, New York City, defines a creative minority like this. He says, a creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. In other words, the argument is that you don't actually need big numbers to create societal change. What you need is potency. You need potency, not necessarily large numbers. You need a small group of people who are fiercely devoted to the cause of Jesus, loyalty to Jesus, and of course, you need the power of the Holy Spirit over time. Let me return to that first visual of the early church. The first hundred years of the rise of Christianity was extremely impressive when you look back on it now. But really back in those days you had to be paying attention to notice like the groundswell of spiritual awakening. There was like a bunch of early Christians sort of quietly living their lives and reorganizing their relationships around the Jesus code of agape and new family lines and stuff like that. In other words, those new family lines are again, whoever believes in Jesus, I'm devoted to bear their burdens and to serve them. Other than that, though, there wasn't that much that you would have seen if you were a secular Roman or pagan Roman. Occasionally, the Christians were being killed for sport because they called Jesus, not Caesar, the Lord and King of the world. So that's the first century. But man, by the third century, it was such a powerful movement that they were impossible to be ignored. Like the inertia behind the community of love was so influential that Caesar's army kept killing them, but they only grew in power and in in influence and in numbers. Call me a foolish dreamer. I just want to be a part of something like that. I just want that to be true of our witness here in Central Oregon. It's time for another Jesus movement like that. And I can actually begin to see that cultural disruption beginning to take place in our church in a good in a good way. My theory is that throughout the history of the American church, there have always been groups like a creative minority, like Bonhoeffer and Hellerman and Newbegin, and that like 15 to 20 percent of the church who are completely devoted to this calling, but it's just not quite enough critical mass to like turn the the culture of, of the church as a whole And revival happens when that 15 to 20% becomes like a bigger critical mass of the family of believers to the point where there's like like a big enough cultural interruption and disruption. And suddenly there's like an outpouring of God's spirit on a consecrated church who's not excusing themselves for not fulfilling the law of love. They're actually united and together in the name of Jesus. So the invitation for you and I is to practice community, again, not just for like our own benefit. Like if you just want like a slightly more enriching experience at Riverbend, like join a community. Now, the re- that sure, that's fine. Hopefully that is this, the case for you. But the reason you practice community is because Jesus taught us to. It's about following his example. That matters. But it's also like the mission of the church hangs in the balance. This is how we show others that the gospel is real in a world that's tired of people trying to convince them what's true. You get to show them what's real. David Brooks, uh, in his latest book, writes this, culture changes when a small group of people find a better way to live and the rest of us copy them. I love that. It really is that simple. People's deepest longing is to be loved. That is historically, scientifically true. It's just true. That is our species' greatest longing, is to be loved. We're loved by Jesus, and we can spread that love by simply embodying it to the world. It's that simple. You might be thinking to me, uh, thinking in response to this, like, come on, Andrew, are you expecting me to go out there and to be this change in Ben and see Ben turned upside down for Jesus, you're like, I've got a full-time job, I'm finishing grad school, I'm an introvert, I've got a toddler, people drive me crazy, like all that stuff, sure, I'm with you. right? The answer is yes and no. It's important to think, though, what is this church's strategy to see Ben changed with the gospel? I think the most important thing you can do To spread the good news about Jesus is to become a compelling witness of the gospel in our time. It's to simply practice community with the people you came with today. Love them deeply from the heart. It's as simple as gathering together for a weekly meal, committing to bear one another's burdens, and devoting yourselves to prayer. And over time, not right away, you're not going to see anything ground shaking happen right away, but over time, that kind of love speaks. Spirit-inspired preaching, miracle working must also be done in our time. Absolutely. And maybe for some of you, that is your place in our body. But your example is the proof that the love of Jesus is actually real. And by the way, this is better than other alternatives. Like, do you think our strategy for seeing Ben changed was like my sermons or something like that? Like, listen, Andrew, if you could just be like 15% more entertaining I could see like a lot of people might want to come and hear about Jesus or something like that. Listen, if you think that we're going to entertain people into the kingdom of God in a post secular, post Christian society, you're just sadly mistaken, right? Like our culture has perfected entertainment. The Sphere in Las Vegas is the latest, like $2 billion entertainment venue. And that exact society that spent $2 million to do that and to perfect entertainment is, is doing all of that to distract from being chronically only lonely and feeling a lack of God's presence. So why would we bother entertaining people into the kingdom of God when we have everything we need from Jesus to create and become an alternative society of love and beyond, belonging and you have been given the spirit of God and his presence in our community, so yes, in a way, it is up to you, but it's not just up to you, it's up to us, the communal life of the body that is all moving and working together as one. And as one, we are able to, uh, over time, influence our community to know and experience the love of Jesus. I wanna leave you and end this whole series. Next week, we're starting Advent, getting into the Luke narratives, and it's gonna be beautiful. I want to end this series in John chapter 4, where Jesus appears to this woman at the well. Many of you are very uh, familiar with this story. She has an encounter with Jesus. And he's hungry and thirsty, kind of tired out, so he asks her to draw him some water. And she's in the middle of doing that. And he says, hey, if you knew who asked you, what you'd be doing is you'd be asking me for living water. Everyone who drinks this water is going to grow thirsty again. But everyone who drinks from my well, the living water, will never grow thirsty again. And she begins to have this genuine, real, powerful encounter with Jesus where he is prophetically speaking into her life. And all of a sudden, after several different uh, promptings from Jesus, she begins to see who he actually is and what he's actually up to. And so she runs home to the city from where she came from in Samaria. She tells everybody about what Jesus had done for him, for her. And they're on their way back to come and hear more from Jesus. It's around this time that Jesus' disciples are also there and they're quite confused. They're like, wait, Jesus, you said you were hungry. We went out and got you some food. Now you're saying we got a bunch more work to do. What are you, what's going on? And Jesus says, look out there. Didn't you say that it's several months until the harvest? But I want you to look out at the fields and recognize that the the, the fields are ready for harvest. And of course, he's talking about the salvation of souls, people coming into the kingdom of God. That story ends with a testimony from those people who were brought there by the woman at the well, they said, "We, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we believe because we have seen for ourselves and we know that this man is the savior of the world. You and I have the opportunity as ones who have been changed by Jesus to image his love in the world so that all men will know who Jesus actually is because of what? Our love for one another. So join community, be a part of the community, devote yourself to community, absolutely. For your enrichment so that you are deeply formed into the image of Jesus, yes. But also as an essential part of our vocation to be a ministry of reconciliation to abroad.